This is On Your Radar, a podcast series produced at WGN Radio with the professional staff at Rosecrans. I'm John Williams, and our guest today is Dr. Thomas Wright. He is the Chief of Clinical Excellence and the President of Medical Affairs at Rosecrans. Thomas, it's nice to see you again. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having us. Good to be back. What does that title of yours mean? Well, it's sort of a new title. It's uh, We're going to be focusing on... Uh, <clears throat> Um, improving our clinical care. There's been a great deal of studies that have burgeoned in the last 20 years in the areas of particularly psychotherapy interventions for all kinds of mental health illnesses. And uh, we need to figure out how to incorporate, translate all those clinical studies into day-to-day work. And that's going to be my job over the next couple of years is trying to pull in all the science and then translate it to -to day-to-day work so we can get the best opportunity for recovery for for all our patients. Because as uh, I've said many times on the radio, anyway, you treat the patient, not the illness. So Mm -hmm. even though there may be a medication for an illness, Mm -hmm. I presume what you're saying is how is that applicable to an individual? Yes, and there's all kinds of things, you know, when we have a treatment plan for someone, a medication might be part of it, but there are so many things, so many different, you know, opportunities for interventions to help people, you know, live a better life, you know, and some of it is for the illness, the mental illness. Some of it is stuff that we can do even beyond taking away the symptoms and that's more the mental wellness piece you know how to get help people thrive or flourish or just do a lot better not just stop being sick but how to really sort of live life with the vigor and the enjoyment that everybody deserves to have yeah i mean what's the point of or what is the evidence of mental health if you don't have those things right that's right and you know and we used to i'm a doctor you know physicians were very oriented around illnesses and around symptoms and so this is a little bit of a cultural shift for physicians to take particularly in psychiatry is sort of moving beyond just stopping the illness and then helping people but the the thing about that is too if you move sort of beyond just stopping to have symptoms and develop some resilience some thriving that's all also a reserve that keeps you from getting sick too so it's a prevention method also we think about so many illnesses for which you will take a medication or undergo a procedure or surgery and once the medication or surgery works they're done Mm -hmm. not so if maybe my illness is mental health related it could be that way and some of them are that way and some of them are just sort of solved by a medication but many of them aren't or they're sort of an ongoing character issue that you need to continue to work at and practice you know i I equate it a lot with the patients I see to maybe musicians. You know, um, if you see any kind of musician, it takes a long time to practice, to learn how to play an instrument, how to be healthy again. And then in order for these musicians to continue to play well, they would say they have to continue to practice. And so my job is to be a coach at that point in time to help them continue to practice the good habits in order to maintain the recovery that they've got. Oh, I've got a line for you. It's <laughs> not just learn how to play the instrument, but how to make music, if you will. Well, see, that's a really good line for beyond sort of stopping to be ill now 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 we want to be musical we don't want to just play the notes we want to be musical with it too i think that's a good analogy but we asked you here today to talk to our listeners about the stigma around mm-hmm. mental health and mental illness um, and i know with one of your colleagues i'll talk more about the difference between health and illness but just give me sort of the elevator speech on that and then let's talk about what our attitudes are about it mm-hmm. how do you distinguish one from the other 
So one of the, uh, we know that mental illness is very prevalent in our population. The U.S. is very similar to other nations, too, but in the U.S. it is, as well as, as we talked in another podcast, you know, uh, mental illness grew during COVID, you know, in particularly in kids when they were isolated. We also know that only a fraction of people with diagnosable mental illnesses come in to get treatment, and maybe just a third, you know, or 40%. Women more than men, you know, um, and that's an interesting sort of uh, division there. But, you know, many of the reasons, so we try to figure out why they don't come in. You know, we have good treatments now, as I said before. There's lots of science now about treating mental illness. And so we have to figure out, we have to get people through the door in order to have them access that. And stigma that's still present in our society is part of the reasons they they don't come in. I could guess what that stigma is about, but talk about its roots. Why? I don't think there's a stigma for cancer. I don't think there's a stigma for diabetes. But why is there one for mental health? Uh, so I think it's, it gets back to culture. It's, well, we can think of it in, in different ways. There's there's public stigma, you know, and sometimes that's how maybe a media portrays someone with mental illness. You can I often see, you know, as we deal with a lot of the shootings in uh, schools, you know, a common denominator would be to blame someone because they have mental illness, you know, uh, some there. I, it always makes me cringe a little bit because people with mental illness aren't very often violent and they may have mental illness i think there may be something else going on there too but media can portray mental illness in sometimes a, a bad way that you don't want to deny that you have it then there's sort of our own what we call our self-stigma our own issues about infior inf- inferiorness that may have been something that uh, that develop in our head because our own you know personal family issues or you know cultural with it too and then there's also institutional stigma too and this is sort of how our government or how our mental health system is designed in order to exclude people sometimes and so that would be sort of institutional stigma too so there's lots of different levels of stigma that can uh, sort of affect people coming in for help is this part of it, too, that it's not so evident? That is, you don't see a scar, you don't see a lesion, mm-hmm. you, it's not yeah. the result of a fall. Yes, you can, you can often hide it. You could it. look normal. You could look normal. You know, people that know you well might not see it, but you could look really quite normal. And most people are. Most people, you know, most people with an anxiety disorder or even a mood disorder like depression can often rally to function, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And we might not know it in the office. We might not know it at the family reunion, might might not know it at church, you know. Um, but then when they go home in the, the silence of their, you know, own self and in their own head, that's when they can sort of manifest itself. And they don't have to live that way. That's, that's partly why we want to address this, because there are so many things we can do. We want them to live a much better fuller life is it perceived as a weakness yeah people perceive it as a weakness uh uh, a lot of people worry about uh if other people know uh are they going to lose their job are they going to lose their position in society are they going to be judged by others and it certainly was the case you know uh that many people in the past uh uh, could have lost their job as a result of having uh, your employer know about it and it's also why a lot of people don't even want to use insurance sometimes insurance covers most because of mental health parity laws it covers most mental health issues now and people don't want to use it because they don't want their employer to know but what is the it we're even talking about i mean what is Mm -hmm. mental health or mental illness is it is it anxiety is it depression is it bipolar is it something else we're using kind of an umbrella phrase here aren't we we are you know and um 
I often talk about doctors being, you know, we haven't talked about doc- people. People in general are lumpers or splitters. People put put things into big categories or little categories. Doctors are splitters. We want our own little cubby holes for things. So we've designed a whole schema, a whole format, you know, to put those in. And I think it's helpful, you know, to study them that way and things like that. So we have a whole the thing called the DSM, you know, that the diagnostic statistical manual that sort of organizes these all into symptom categories and a bunch of different names. And that's sort of the splitting part to it. So this conversation about the stigma associated with mental health could be any of those cubby holes, right? It could be any of those things. That's what we would say as a physician. I, I, I don't like it in some ways. It helps us in terms to develop a treatment plan. But what what bothers me, and this is the part where I want to be as a lumper, is sometimes we forget about the whole person. Then we just sort of focus on that you know particular phobia or that particular piece of depression or the suicidality. We don't look at someone as the whole person. And we know if we address uh, things as a whole person, people become more resilient and get a better recovery. Well, have we become more accepting of this? That somebody has one of those cubby holes filled. We, I, I would say, as a society as a whole, we are. We are more I, accepting in it that. than my generation when I was a kid. You know, I think we people talk about freely. We'll talk about having their therapist. You know, talk about their kids with ADHD. We'll even talk about suicidality, and I think that's a good thing. I think the more we talk about it, you know, the more it becomes less of a of a potent issue for people that they want to avoid uh doesn't mean we're there yet you know we've got a long ways to go but that's one of the things we can do and that is happening in our society to be able to bring people in for treatment more do you dislike the word crazy i well, i use it sometimes when um i in general i should say yes in general i dislike the word crazy because i usually usually it's in a derogatory way about someone who is having experienced symptoms of mental illness that they can't control themselves so in general I, I i dislike it sometimes i use it when someone is so confusing to me and they have so much going on i just don't even know how to split them or lump them and so i just lump them at well they're just crazy but i don't it's not helpful it's not a helpful term you know for me as a physician or i don't think most most time other people either i'm going to guess that the biggest stigma attached to it besides they're crazy they lack control mm-hmm. or they lack discipline i i say those are different things is that they might be violent too that mm. it would not be safe for me to put my children in their care or let them teach a class or interact without supervision talk about how in control these people are or are not so violence is not a part of serious mental illness it's a it, it can exhibit itself in a small portion of it but it's not something that is very prevalent in serious mental illness i think sometimes what we see if people that are acting differently than other people around us we get scared of that that and that's normal you know we there's a certain way to act you know when i was a psychology class in undergrad they had us do uh, as pairs we had us do some strange things like walk into an elevator instead of turning around staring at the doors you stayed facing the people and just look at them act normal but look at them like that people get uncomfortable you know easily with things like that because it's different than everything else so when you see someone talking to themselves or someone uh 
someone that's manic and maybe talking really fast or really loud, it feels different. And people feel uncomfortable with that. And sometimes uncomfortable turns into fear. But I think the fear is that that um, discomfort I'm experiencing is because they may do something without provocation. They maybe do something mm-hmm. injurious to themselves or others. Now, I just heard you say that it doesn't lead to violence. But if we're only talking here about the stigma, I can see why people honestly have that mm-hmm. attached, right? I do. I, I do see <clears throat> that that's a common thing. In, in anything that's foreign to us, we worry about that. Is it going to be safe or not? I think it's, you know, Freud used to talk about the other, you know, things that aren't familiar with it. And you could even talk about this in terms of cultures or religions or ethnicities that you're not familiar with. Sometimes we put undue stereotypes or thoughts on them that might not be part of the truth, but they're different than what we're used to. And so our our, sort of our natural protective mechanisms in our heads says that uh, you maybe need to be careful and that may be dangerous. But do we also judge people with an evident mental illness this this way, that they should um, discipline themselves more, you know, man up, buck up here and just handle it, right? You're not bleeding. Um, i I'll bet we still do that more than we should. We do, and we I hear that all the time, especially with depressed people. You know, some people, well-meaning loved ones, will say, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If you just exercise more, or if you just eat better, or if you just moved around more, you know, you would get better. And um, well-meaning, all out of love and well-meaning, but it uh, oftentimes ends up being a... A intervention or a suggestion that can be more harmful than helpful because the people just because of the depression itself, they just don't have the ability to do that. Then they feel worse because they feel like they've disappointed someone. And I suppose it's sufficiently alienating because maybe your behavior is stranger than most people are comfortable with that 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 is why some people are loath to acknowledge or admit they have a problem. That's right. And try to hide it, you know, on top of that. They try to hide it from themselves, even though they know they've maybe experienced that on the inside. You know, I think we've all done it. You know, we try to put on a good face, you know, sometimes. But when it's a major mental illness, you know, and your quality of your life is suffering, you know, stigma is what stops us from getting help. And we want to try to address that. So I wonder what that's like for those people, how tortured they must be internally then. Well, it is because of the their own, like, again, their self-stigma, the things that they were taught as younger, like maybe their dad did say, you know, just work harder at this, or, you know, you don't need to be scared of that, or, you know, some other piece of information that's, well, easy thing, or LGBT, you know, kids who often have an internalized, you know, homophobia, they're worried about themselves, so they almost hate themselves more because of what they've been taught to be normal. And this is part of the reason why there's such a high suicide rate amongst uh, LGBT youth is because of the self-loathing, that the torture, as you say, that they have inside of them. Seems Not wanting like, to be different. Yeah, They're different than everybody else. So it does seem, though, that there are more and more LGBTQ-friendly events or or discussions that we do seem to be, and I won't get political with you here, some people don't feel that's appropriate, but mm-hmm. I think that, by and large, that tide is coming in, isn't it? The traje- trajectory is good on that. We're not, <clears throat> yes, it's not where we need to be, I think, on that, if we want to... If we want to bring the mental illness rate of LGBT youth down to youth that aren't LGBT, then we have a ways to go, but it's heading in the right direction. And do you think then those kinds of events are appropriate at a library 
library or at a bingo night or something like that, a book reading, a story time, uh, um, even a drag show, although uh, that's not the very same thing. But it does seem like we're trying to, if, if not open doors, break down some walls here and introduce this population to the general population. Do you support the efforts that you're hearing about these days? Yes, because again, that breaks down some of the stigma. That breaks down some of the self-stigma that they uh, they may have, <clears throat> or even within their family they may have, because all of a sudden it normalizes it. It makes them more familiar with it. It's not the other. It's not strange. It's not something that's different and becomes familiar and comfortable. And that's how you break down stigma. Is that stigma then attached to the family members, the parents? They must feel that too. Yep, and all of in anywhere where you can make that kind of intervention, it uh, breaks down the stigma and people get better. Intervention? How do you do that? How how do you <coughs> intervene? Oh, I, I'd say when I say intervention in that terms, I just in anything that you say, you know, uh, would be an intervention. Anything a family member might say, like. Um, uh, you know, you might even say things like, uh, do you, what pronouns do you prefer? That might be an intervention too that gives you a message that gives your kid a message that you're sensitive about that. Or you might use the word significant other rather than boyfriend or girlfriend who assume they have that. Or, uh, you know, things along that line, you know, to give messages that I would call all of those things interventions. The fluidity of gender is something that a generation right now just cannot get their heads around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, if I'm not there, I can see there from here and I understand that that. That's a very complex concept. I mean, if we started with something that we do appreciate, anxiety, Mm -hmm. or some of the more traditional things we would call mental health issues, all the way through the things you and I have segued into now, you can see what a leap that is for some people, how there'd be either stigma attached or how they might themselves be throwing off stigmatic vibrations, not intentionally, but because it's also alien to them. It is. Again, it's the other. We grew up, you know, I, I, I have a much sympathy or empathy for people as they have to adjust to gender fluidity, not just the individuals that are adjusting it to a gender that they don't feel they are, that they're not comfortable with. That's a, certainly a stigma they have to deal with. But others around them, too, grew up a certain way, you know, and it's hard to change that. Even if you really want to, it's very hard to change that, and that's that's part of the challenge. And do you think that there is um, more mental health issues or struggles in America right now, or are we just becoming more appreciative of it, aware of it? Uh, you know, I, like anything, I think it's a combination. I mean, that's a really good question, and we think about that all the time. But I think evidence of addressing stigma, people are talking about it more, are willing to sort of reveal it to their doctor or to a therapist or something else. So I, I do think we're better able to diagnose it, but I think there is more prevalence with it, too. And as we've talked about, even with teens, there's so much more pressure on teens means uh today than say in 1985 you know when i was in college you know there's so much more pressure on them it's no wonder that they're having more mental illness sure but i'll bet the stigma was greater in 85 or 75 Mm -hmm. it makes one wonder what's the better approach even if you could turn the tide and you can't (laughs) i wonder if some people would just prefer us not talk about it rather than be so open about everything and now i have to deal with it the stigma may still be there you know uncovering things that have long been hidden are always is always uncomfortable so i you know uh I, I, who's to say what's going to be best for them but i understand what you're saying that some people might think things it's better just to leave it lie the way it is and for some people that might be the case but i think for the most part since there are so many treatments that we can offer right now we want people if they need help to come to us
And relative to the stigma we're talking about, and it's an umbrella again, mm-hmm. but I wonder who leads the change on this. Is it is it medical professionals? Is it teachers? Is it the people themselves who are struggling with mental health issues? Is it incumbent upon them mm-hmm. to come out and say, hey, I'm not well right now? You know, I think it's incumbent on all of us. I and mean, certainly leading with mental health professionals is probably important. The National Alliance for Mentally Ill, NAMI, which might be an organization that you're familiar with. These are just people. These are family members of people with mental illness. They've been leading the way nationally with this for years with uh, ad campaigns and social media sort of campaigns to sort of help normalize mental illness so people feel comfortable with it. You know, even some state governments, California uh, did a a campaign, you know, an advertising and social network campaign to try to get people to come in for treatment because they needed it sort of as an anti-stigma thing. And um, and in the state of California, in the four or five years that this was running, you know, visits for mental health, you know, increased by 15%. So it worked. You really? Know? And so... Ad companies have responsibility. You and I have responsibility by by doing this. I, as a physician, have it by trying to destigmatize it. When people come to my office, I think we all have a part in this. Well, to be clear, the purpose of this conversation you and I are having is to maybe empower people to say, mm-hmm. "Okay, I can. If I can't handle this, I can handle the um, the stigma of seeking out help." Yep. But I wonder to what degree do people say you brought it upon yourself? You were irresponsible, or you drank too much, or you stressed too much, and I told you to relax. I wonder how much people, in fact, do bring it upon themselves, or 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 we judge them that way. Well, I think you point out two different things there. One thing's our own internal self-talk, what we do with our own habits and how we treat ourselves, then how other people treat us. They both have an effect on us, you know, along the way. And so I think people, to some extent, they do bring it on themselves. Some of it's the stress from externally that's put on them, too. You know, and... And I I don't mean to bring it on themselves in terms of an accusatory or fault kind of way, but we all have habits and self-talk that uh, that we need to break down sometimes in order to uh, change, you know, and in that sense, that is bringing it on ourselves because we are who we are. What's an example of that? Well, with depression especially, sometimes uh, uh, some of the self-talk that we have with depression will tell us, you're never going to get better, you know, it's no use, you can't do this, you're a failure, why would you go to treatment if that's your self-talk? Why would you go in and try to get help? You have to, you or somebody else has to help you get past that self-talk in order to go in and, and try to get an intervention to almost stop them. I think some of us build these hierarchies, like there's anxiety, then there's depression, mm-hmm. then there's um, deep psychosis, manic depression, that sort of thing. Um, does that hierarchy exist, and is there a point where a person should be able to manage it and, uh, you know, where, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll lead a, a, a healthier mental life, and then is there a point where it's like, no, you're not going to fix this, you really need to seek professional help? Is there a line, and where is it? I think that's individual. I, I certainly think there's a line where you're not functioning in your family life, your social life, you know, your work life. If you're not functioning there, that's certainly a place where everybody ought to go and try to seek help. Then it sort of depends on what you want to do individually. Again, I, I want to say we want to get past just not having symptoms, but we want you to thrive. At Rosecrans, we want you to flourish. We want you to thrive. And so, you know, you might pa- be past just having symptoms, but you might want to go more than that. So keep coming. Keep working at some of those character things that are going to help you really thrive. And that's 
but that's an individual thing. Something you may want and I may want, but somebody else may not want. They just want to not have symptoms anymore. And we got to accept that, that that's where they're at. You know, we think about young people in the last five years, especially maybe pre-pandemic, the failure to launch, the mm-hmm. concept that some young people just don't seem to get out of their shell or out of their parents' basement. And it, I think about that because you describe individuals who might be able to maybe quell the mental illness but not be so well that they're actually flourishing. Right. I wonder if those two observations are somehow related. Maybe there has been a baseline of, okay, I'm managing it, but I'm not so well that I'm actually doing well. Yeah, that that could be really true. And sort of the isolation maybe made you more aware of that sort of and so that's what happened during covid you're sort of more aware of it or accentuated it because of the isolation and the loneliness but if that's true then we say well lois and bob's kid really isn't doing anything right now and then everybody kind of looks sideways at that it's cyclical isn't it it's a, sort of it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes but you know we have to jump in you know there's a you know i'm a family therapist also and there's a there's a thought in family things called the ripple effect you know a family night might not be functioning very well and i as a family therapy can't figure out everything but if i can find one spot you know to make a change in it and we drop that rock in right there there's a ripple effect from there so that's one of the things when systems are not functioning well together you find some place to make an intervention and sometimes that can have the ripple effect to everything else in the system would you say it requires a certain amount of courage then if there is a person who is struggling with mental health in my family or at my workplace? It'll take a certain amount of courage for those other people to mm. embrace it, support it, acknowledge it, and, they, and, and, and enable that person to still be part of the unit. You know, We're not mm-hmm. going to ostracize them. But I mean, that's, <laughs> that's on me. Mm-hmm. That's not on that individual. It's courage and it's a desire to change. We have to think how we want to think differently, too. And we have to, you know, address our own stigma issues, too. But, yeah, courage and comfort with making some change. And sometimes that's a hard thing for most of us to do because we want to think we know everything. And, you know, sometimes we have to admit that we don't and then have the courage to admit that. And then that's where change begins. I wonder if social media plays a factor in this. Mm. Is that helping or hurting this conversation, this idea? It yes <laughs> like most things you know you, we just have to look at some of the the data about instagram and it's um <clears throat> its uh, influence on uh, what teenage girls should look like. And uh, and one of the reasons why so many self-esteem issues uh, came out of uh, front, increased with girls that were using Instagram was because it gave an impression of what girls should look like. And, 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 and I suppose that's a stigma in some ways. It's a sort of an ingrained sort of thought about what someone would like. Girls compared themselves to that. They didn't fit that, and then they felt bad. So I think social media can influence it. I think influence it for the better, too. I mean, the California campaign, a big part of that about, you know, coming to treatment was uh, social media also. So social media can hurt it. It can help it also. I've seen campaigns where models then demonstrate or movie stars what they look like in the morning <laughs> without their makeup on. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's famous supermodels. It was Oprah Winfrey. It was a lot of women who mm-hmm. we know for their beauty on tv and then you see them and you go well they look just like the rest of us but for a makeup crew they do you know and so that's body image kind of things the other thing about stigma that a lot of uh 
actors or famous people might admit that they have difficult betty ford would be you know sort of one of those best examples you know there was a time where if you were the a first lady and you admitted you had a substance abuse problem you would be kicked out your husband you know would not be president and you'd be kicked out <clears throat> but they came out with it you know and uh, so many uh famous actresses and actors that have talked about their struggle with depression or anxiety or bipolar um have told us about that and that uh, that helps with stigma a great deal I think Betty Ford's a good example. It's one of the first, right? It's the one of the She's ones the that becomes that famous. Comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Ronald and didn't Reagan. That us, didn't that change our heads in oh a my lot gosh. of ways? About, uh, I, they weren't the drunk in the corner anymore. This was Betty Ford that we loved. I, you know, I was young enough that I re- old enough that I remember her. But she was just for me. She was a lovable character, and she was everybody's mother. And that she had this problem that changed me completely. And was composed, and yet yeah. she revealed that she knew it was out of control when she was drinking mouthwash when she thought okay, I'll get some alcohol there. And I thought, wow, I think Ronald Reagan did us a service Mm -hmm. when he, before he was unable, penned a letter to America saying this is my dementia. I don't know that that falls exactly into the category we're talking about, but as forward as you can be about Mm – your experience does us so much good. Yeah, and any of those role models, if you will, famous people, whether they're politicians, leaders, you know, actors that sort of help normalize it for us and bring it into your home so we understand it, it's all a healthy thing to address stigma. What's the stigma around mental health that is foremost, do you think, right now? What would you most like to either stamp out or address? Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> I think what I think about the most is, again, as I mentioned, even beginning when we were talking, in the past 20, 30 years, science, you know, our field, science in the area of mental health has grown exponentially. You know, medications, other treatments like transcranial magnetic stimulation, you know, uh, 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 psychotherapies. We have so many interventions that are proven to be workable now through standardized scientific good rigorous studies and so my frustration is that it's out there we have a lot that can do and people still feel like uh there's nothing anybody can do about it there is a lot we can do and i wonder if the rash of mass violent events has made it more difficult for people to avail themselves of that you said a moment ago Mm -hmm. that rarely does somebody suffering from mental health act violently but whenever somebody acts violently we ascribe that to a deficiency in their mental health that they have a mental health problem And that may be more true than not, right? I mean, my goodness, what would the definition of mental health be? But then you sit on the roof of a building and shoot at people at a parade. I would say that person is mentally ill. Would you? Um, So in a broad sense, yes, I I would agree. But I also talk about what I think about with someone like that is a really a character logic issue, a character flaw that is – is it how they think? Yes, it's how they think, but it's not an illness in the sense that it's it's normal for them. So it's normal how they're functioning, and it's a character personality issue less than an illness that's affecting them for a period of time that started. So I know it's a fine line in some ways. You know, where does like how you think as a person and as a personality move into an illness? But you know, that's that's sort of how I think about it too. But if I hear you correctly. Some people can just be so angry, so pissed at the world Mm -hmm. that they're going to do something violent that they know full well is inappropriate, 
It's not that they don't realize that. It's that they're still going to do it. That's the character flaw you're talking about. That they're still going to do it, and this is what they've been their whole life. This is how they were as a child. The, 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 the emotions or the way they think about things is how they have always been. It's not really changeable. It's sort of in stone. But doesn't that stigmatize then everybody else who does have a legitimate, air quotes around legitimate, mental mm-hmm. health problem? Yes, it does. You know, it, it, it does. And I think you're exactly right. That's part of the reason why sometimes people don't come in. They don't want to think they're like that shooter that was there. I see that as a very different thing than people struggling with anxiety disorders or depression, things that might be episodic that happened at some point in time in their life. It's not part of their character, not part of their personality. It's something they know is sort of different or foreign to them, and that's when they can come and get help. Does it help us then when politicians and talk show hosts say, well, we have a mental health issue here. That's why we have these violent events, and we need to spend more money. The Biden administration has just earmarked $300 Mm -hmm. million for mental health in a bipartisan gun bill. So it's it's definitely on that bus. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about it that way. I wonder if you wish we wouldn't or you don't care. So anyway, we can get more funding for mental health. I think that's that's a stigma, discriminatory stigma that we've had in our society is underfunding, you know, mental health as an intervention. So yeah. any way we can get more health, you know, is that bad for me to say, it's a, you know, as long as we're getting more help, I think that's fine. I don't like, <clears throat> I don't like the reason for it, but any way we can get more help, I'm very happy to support. So, well, I suppose. And I, and I think Biden was probably thinking the same thing. Sometimes there's something that happens that gives you an opportunity to make a change in society. It might not be something that might be the right thing, but it gives you the opportunity for change and i think that was that that might have been what we saw there well are you hopeful that money spent Mm -hmm. in the name of that will in fact make some of these events less likely to happen i i think it can i think it is possible you know i don't think that there's i don't think there's a direct connection to it but i think you know a rising tide raises all boats and i think from that perspective i think we will prevent some things too. Well, this is off our topic here but the path from 300 million dollars or a zillion dollars Mm -hmm. to Keeping somebody from acting a certain way strikes me as being a long and winding road. How does that stop that? I, I'm not sure if it does, and I'm not <clears throat> sure if we can do that. But that, if that act prompted this bigger action, maybe that's sort of how it does that. We'll so, take it. Yeah. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Any last thoughts for us about the stigma attached? You do see the needle moving in the right direction towards society's acceptance of mental health issues, correct? I do. Overall, I see the trajectory good. There's some worrisome things since COVID. There's other worrisome things. You know, uh, a guild organization I belong to, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, just released an urgent report, you know, um, talking about the dramatic increase in suicidal behavior amongst black youth. And um, a lot of that is likely because of some of the discrimination that they feel or the worry they feel in society right now. And so I think there's there's the overall trajectory is good. I think we have areas that we need to really focus on that I worry about also. So can I say I'm happy about it in general, but I think there's a lot of things, there's a lot of work we still have to do. I wonder if um, it's part of, I don't know what health class is like these days, but I wonder if we're spending enough time educating kids, educating families. Here's what happens. Here's how it manifests itself. Here's how you could 
react in a helpful way. Uh, mm-hmm. Boy, that would do a lot to, I think, uh, blow away some of the clouds around this. No, I agree. And, you know, even to even pull back what we talked about in the beginning, who's responsible for addressing this stigma? Certainly I am as a mental health professional, but radio people can do it. You know, teachers can do it. You know, uh, clergy can do it. You know, your friends can do it. You know, social media can do it. But I think, yeah, I think we all have an opportunity, you know, to make our own intervention in our own kind of way. I think we'll end it there, Doctor. All right. Dr. Thomas Wright is the Chief of Clinical Excellence at Rosecrans. He's also the President of Medical Affairs there. And I think... um, that uh, part of the Rosecrans business is in pretty good hands right now. Thanks for talking to us. Glad to be here. Thank you. This is On Your Radar, a podcast series produced by WGN Radio and the doctors and clinical staff at Rosecrans. With over 60 locations throughout Chicagoland, Northern and Central Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, getting help is just a click away. Go to rosecrans.org. Rosecrans, life's waiting. Mm-hmm.